Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as senior minister here at Knox. So we're into the fourth week of our sermon series exploring the drama of Scripture. We're going through the whole of the Bible, and we're thinking of it as a play in six acts. So to recap, in God's story, the first act is creation, the second is the fall, the third act is covenant, the fourth is God sending his son Jesus. In the fifth act, which we come to today, God sends us out as the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with the sixth act next week comes the consummation, the fulfillment of God's promises. And at the very center of this story, running through it as well, is Jesus Christ, in whom God has revealed his purpose for the world and given each one of us a particular meaning, a particular calling sent us out. And the Bible teaches that only as we adopt this grand narrative, this big story of God's presence in the world and his purposes, only then will we in turn find what he has for us. So today is a different act in this series because today we come to the act that we are living in now. We are the church. This is the time of the church. Jesus has already come, but he has not yet returned to fully restore the world to its original goodness. And so you can think of this as already not yet. Already Jesus, not yet made right, not yet fulfilled. We know that God took on flesh and entered our world. We'll remember and celebrate that next month with Advent and Christmas. And so Jesus accomplished his work of redemption at the cross. Already accomplished, but not yet fulfilled. And so we await his return when redemption will be consummated. Again, we live in the tension of that already not yet. And understanding that tension explains so much of the struggles we face, both as Christians in the church and in the wider world. Here's an analogy for you if you're having a bit of trouble wrapping your heads around already not yet. Taylor Swift came to Toronto She's here right now, and she has already performed three of her concert dates, but she's not yet done. Yes, you can still spend three grand on a ticket, a cheap ticket, for a seat at one of those concerts that's this coming week. Jesus, Taylor Swift, okay, not a perfect analogy, although it's totally true that the worship of Taylor Swift is a thing. We'll come back to that. So we find ourselves in Act 4 today in this series, and we're living in Act 4 ourselves, experiencing that as we follow Jesus, love the city, and serve the world. And as we wait for the city that is to come, the new Jerusalem, a world restored to its original goodness as God intended for us to enjoy. But what is the church? I love asking people that question because you get a different answer every time. One of the things I enjoy is when I'm with a group of people, just asking people to give an example of when they have had ex an experience of church, a really good experience of Christian community. Hebrews 10, the passage we read this morning, 
reminds me of an experience that I had like that one time. I started to follow Jesus in my mid-20s, and right after my conversion to faith in Christ, I moved to Beijing to study Mandarin. In China, I joined an international church where I worshipped and learned to serve, and I also joined a small group Bible study, and that's where I grew in my understanding of who Christ is and this story we've been talking about so much in the Bible. In that small group, we studied Leviticus and Hebrews. Now, Leviticus is without a doubt the worst book of the Bible for a new Christian to read. It has two long chapters that deal with skin disease, mildew, and molds, for one thing. But the leaders of this small group I was a part of were truly gifted and became mentors to me. And you really do need Leviticus in the Old Testament to understand Hebrews in the New Testament. And I think we need Hebrews to really grasp the centrality of Jesus to our faith and to fix our eyes on him as the author and the perfecter of that faith. This passage sums up the message of the entire book of Hebrews. Actually, you could say this passage sums up Christian faith also, I think. And so today I want to look at it as it lays out the source and life of the church. First, it starts with God and how Jesus is a new and living way to God as kind of the foundation to what the church is. And then it invites us to draw near, to enter into a sincere relationship with God, to be born again, as we saw last week in the encounter Jesus had with Nicodemus. And then third, it talks about our calling to be together, to be the church, to not give up meeting together, to allow ourselves to be spurred on to love others. So the first half of this passage tells us what God has done for us. The second half focuses on our response to him. The first half is the difference that Jesus makes. The second half is the practice, the living out of it. And these two sides are inseparable. Being a Christian demands both of them. Faith and practice must come together because faith without action is no faith at all. And so Hebrews focuses most of all on Jesus. The foundation of this passage and of our faith is the uniqueness and the centrality of Jesus Christ. God comes first. And what has he done for us? Well, it's summed up here. In verse 19, we are reintroduced to the perfect holiness of God and the work of Jesus, his death at the cross, his blood and sacrifice. Next, in verse 20, Jesus is alive a new and living way to God. It's as if the doors swing open and the church can come on through. Finally, in verse 21, Jesus is a great high priest, a divine advocate, speaking for us in heaven. And so the overall message here is that we're no longer at a distance from God. We're no longer separated from him because of our sin, our self-centered nature, our rebellion. Jesus has made the difference. He's met the conditions for access to God when we could not. Something that every Jew would have longed for and seen as at the very center of the existence, of their existence and the meaning of life. Do we see entering into God's presence that way? I think most of us come to a worship service on a Sunday morning at some level hoping to be entertained. We may talk about the importance of having a personal relationship with God, but it 
is easy sometimes to forget how wonderful and terrible it is to approach the living God, the Lord of the universe. Well, these opening three verses can help us in that way, I think. They remind us that our God is the God of Israel. And Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in Jesus, so of course it describes God using the language of temple worship. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship, of life really, for the Jews. It looked like this at the time of Jesus. You can see this elaborate complex, huge walls, but the meaning, the point of the whole edifice was at its very center. At the core of that building you see in the middle there was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, it was known as. That was as close as you could get to God's glory. All of this set up to lead you into, and in a way keep you apart from, the glory of God himself. Because you had to keep your distance from that glory because it was dangerous. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when he would make sacrifices and ask for God's forgiveness. But here, in Hebrews 10, it says that when Jesus shed his blood and died for us at the cross, his sacrifice made it possible for us to enter with confidence into that most holy place. He gave his body so that the curtain could be thrown back and everything that separated us from entering into the presence of God removed, dealt with. Another way to describe God's holiness is that he is beyond us. God is the most powerful, beautiful, incredible thing in the universe. I think we need to wrap our heads around this concept of holiness because it's not something we hear about, we're interested in, in our culture. So here are some possible non-Jewish ways of describing God's holiness. In the TV show Chernobyl that came out on HBO a few years ago, a great show, I might add, if you haven't seen it, there's a scene where the guy's dealing with the nuclear meltdown that is really what the show's about. They realize that they need to find volunteers to go into the reactor. And so three people eventually volunteer to do that. And as they wade through radioactive waters towards the core, we know it's going to kill them. It's pure power, and you cannot approach that and live. You'll never be the same. In a way, God is like that. As I search for other ways of describing God's holiness, I asked my kids for a pop culture comparable. And they went right to Marvel, of course, and came up with two options. Either when the supervillain Thanos snaps his fingers and obliterates half of the people in the universe, or when Thor shows up in Infinity Wars with his shiny new super hammer. Which one would you choose? I don't know. We can talk about that over soup, maybe. But in fact, none of these parallels really works because God is not a nuclear reactor. The power of a nuclear reactor gets at God's power. But no, God is personal. And unlike Thanos, God is good. Unlike Thor, who fails to save the day despite 
his amazing hammer. God is all-powerful, and God does save us. Most of all, these analogies don't work because God is real, and he loves us. He is always present. His holiness does not keep him from pursuing us. So how would you describe God's holiness to your friends who may not believe in God, who might read this passage and not understand it, almost certainly wouldn't understand it? When you have a friend who tells you they're struggling, could you talk to them? Could you share with them the hope you have that comes from trusting in a God who is so wonderful, so powerful, and so far beyond us that he is able to enter into our world and actually save us, and yet who is also so loving and merciful that he did save us by sending Jesus to be this new and living way so that we could come home into his presence. The Jewish Christians to whom this letter was written needed to grasp that Jesus is the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice, and that through him and through him alone, we can approach God. We can enjoy the communion with God we were created for. Our challenge today in our culture, I think, is to not take that access for granted. And so we see that Jesus died to open a new and living way for us. But that's not the end of the story. It also says that Jesus is now our high priest. What does that mean? Well, a priest represents the people to God. A priest is an advocate. So it means Jesus himself is praying for you. Do you remember when you were a kid and playing sports, how much it meant to have your parent or maybe a friend cheering you on from the sidelines? Jesus plays that role like we couldn't begin to imagine. Prays for us when we're not praying, when our prayer life has tanked. Presents to the Father needs we're not even aware of. Covering blind spots, offering protection against dangers that haven't even occurred to us. Jesus is praying right now that your faith will continue and grow. And that you will run the race you're in to its conclusion. And that is the way this opening section of Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 concludes. And that comes right before we get into our calling to live the Christian life. And so Jesus, as our high priest, is grace. It's all grace. So we've come through these foundational three opening verses. How are we going to respond? Verse 22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Guilt gets in the way of our relationship with God. Guilt can be the thing that stops us from praying. And Christians, well, we're famous for guilt. H.L. Mencken once described a certain kind of Christian, as a person with a haunting fear that someone, somewhere, is happy. We're told that guilt is bad all the time in our culture and that we should get rid of it as quickly as possible, that we need to feel good about ourselves. And so self-esteem and self-care are the new priorities. 
And yet, we find ourselves in the middle of the worst mental health epidemic our world has ever seen. People are lonely like they've never been, struggling in all kinds of ways. And Hebrews 10 speaks into that need, speaks love to us. And it starts with the esteem that only Jesus can attain and that he gives us freely. One of the worst words in the schoolyard or in your own mind that you can call someone is loser. Loser, for me, is one of the nastiest, most horrible names, labels you can pin on someone. But how often do we call ourselves a loser? We do it day after day. We dwell on our failures, and even though we've gotten good at denying our guilt, it still surfaces. But as we sang earlier, Jesus calls our name, and we ran out of that grave. And in this passage, he gives us a new name. We are confident, sincere, assured, faithful, cleansed, unswerving, hopeful, inventive in love and good deeds, united in meeting together. We are encouragers. It's not about finding goodness or strength within ourselves. No, we have been made new, adopted as beloved children of God. And so in that new identity, we draw near to him in this confidence. I once heard a novelist, an atheist, say something that I thought was amazing in a debate about spirituality and God. She turned to the Christian on the panel and she said, I envy you. I envy you that you've got someone to forgive you. Imagine the despair of having no one who could truly forgive you, forgive you at the deepest level of your guilt. Too little guilt through denial and too much guilt both distance us, distance us from God. But good guilt is a reality check. It draws us back to our need for God, our need to repent and to turn to him. And he forgives us every time and reminds us of our baptism that our hearts are sprinkled, our bodies washed. In Christ, we are made new. Maybe you're thinking as you read this passage that you're not sure of your faith, that you find it hard to imagine holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess. But what matters is that the one in whom we have put our hope is faithful. He says, draw near to me and I will be with you always. And so we move from this individual drawing near to God who deals with our guilt to our togetherness as the church because we do this together or we don't do it at all. You can pray on your own, but you cannot live the Christian life alone. And as we move through these verses, it becomes apparent that Jesus calls us into the church non-negotiably. He's calling us away from the safety of individualism and the security of self-sufficiency. He wants us to get involved in each other's lives. He knows it's messy and he says, dive in because I will meet you there in ways you can't imagine. This is practical stuff in the end and it starts with a simple act of meeting together like we're doing right now. It's a choice we make. 
It's a commitment. It's something we say this is happening every week. By showing up, you will find that things get interesting. Verse 24 says, Let us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. I love how the message paraphrases that verse. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love. Isn't that great? Inventive in love. That is our calling. To be inventive is to be able to create or design new things or to to think originally. COVID forced the church and really all of society into creative thinking and innovative action. As we continue to recover from the pandemic in all sorts of ways, is the church now stuck in recovery mode? God forbid that that be the case. God is still spurring us on. Remember at the start of this series in Genesis 1, we saw the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters before God spoke the whole universe into existence with his creative power. You can think of the church like that. The church as a beachhead in the world where the Holy Spirit is hovering over us where God is nurturing justice and healing and reconciliation. And every week as we gather for worship, also as you gather in your home church, as you serve in a myriad of ways, the Holy Spirit hovers over us. When we exchange the peace as part of the worship service, the Holy Spirit is giving us a glimpse of how he's bringing us together, leading us into relationship with one another. The Holy Spirit hovers over our community as the announcements are made, as the bulletin is distributed, and all the inventiveness behind the scenes at work. And today, as we approve our church's audited financial statements, all of that due diligence, all of that stewardship of resources, every single line item is intended to pave the way for us to be inventive in sharing the love of Jesus to reach out to those who need his love in this city. In the months ahead, Knox's leadership and, and all of us, I hope, will be praying and seeking God's vision for the future of our congregation. What is the new thing that the Holy Spirit is calling us to? How are you personally seeking to be inventive in love this week? One thing that's for sure is that being in community isn't easy. We seem to constantly hurt each other. When that happens, when we get burned or we're just disappointed, we may find that we're tempted to pull back and walk away. But here the author of Hebrews urges us to not give up meeting together. It can feel overwhelming when you see the needs of the world. Our society is increasingly polarized based on politics and ideology. As the church, we're called not to give up meeting together, but rather to model reconciliation even within our community. I read recently about a pastor with a divided congregation. Someone decided to leave. She said, Pastor, look, I don't feel safe in this church anymore knowing how many progressive left-wing people there are here who think differently than I do and who are just plain wrong. I can't relax. I can't be myself here. And later a couple came to him and and said, 
Pastor, we're not sure we'll, we'll ever, ever feel settled in this congregation when people here hold such oppressive, conservative views. We need a church that takes sides. And the pastor tried to persuade them to not stop meeting together, that they would find God's grace in that tension, that the church was a community in which we can love one another even when we disagree. But they said it wasn't natural to be in community with those other people. But the gospel goes beyond what's natural. While we were in outright rebellion against God, he moved towards us, not to crush us, but with affection and to forgive us. He sent his son to love and rescue us. And we are sent to go and do likewise by modeling his kind of reconciliation. The witness of the church of Christ would change overnight if it put down the mantle of defending God's reputation and instead picked up the responsibility of loving our enemies. Even when we disagree on who they are, you can still love them. When we're honest about the failures of the church, we may be tempted to despair. We see the church divided, struggling. How is it going to end? Where does this lead? Well, the very end of the passage we heard read speaks to that. To come back to Taylor Swift, one of my favorite songs of hers is called Invisible String. The chorus goes like this. Time, mystical time, cutting me open, then healing me fine. Were there clues I didn't see? And isn't it just pretty to think all along there was some invisible string tying you to me? She describes a relationship and then offers this almost fanciful idea. Isn't it just so pretty to think, she says, that there was a logic, a fate, a providence guiding her life. But an invisible string isn't much to hope in. Taylor Swift, I think, is at her best when she's singing about conflict and trouble in relationships, that she's a nightmare dressed like a daydream, and she's got a blank space waiting to write someone's name in it. And about the experience of exile when a relationship fails and falls apart. I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. You're not my homeland anymore. I'm a fan, as you can perhaps tell. But the Bible tells a different story. Through the drama of scripture, we see that it's not an invisible string that ties things together in our lives, but it's in Christ that all things hold together. The whole point of God's story is how his love was made visible in Jesus so that we could trust in it, truly depend on it. The hope of the Christian faith is that we're no longer in exile from God or from one another, and that the ending is coming but that it will be good, the goodness that we've longed for our whole lives. And the homeland we seek in so many ways is not another person, is not the security of wealth and material possessions, does not come from some other source of satisfaction, but only as we come home to God our Heavenly Father. That's the day mentioned in verse 25 of this passage. The day that we're waiting for and that we're told is approaching is the day when Jesus will return. He will set things right. He will heal every broken heart and there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering. 
That is the day he's asking us to keep as our horizon for all that we do and who we are. When you get burned by church or when Christians disappoint you, you can pull back and walk away from community. Or you can remember how this passage began. It started with the blood of Jesus. When we're discontent, when we're frustrated, our natural instinct is to blame someone else. Maybe it's a church leader. Maybe it's a friend who has let you down. Perhaps you've been hurt by a parent, by a family member. Jesus asks us not to dwell on the lack of love. He invites us to turn back to him instead. He takes the blame on himself. He takes that suffering. He goes to the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that we can become these new people. And so that we, in turn, can enter into that life together in community where we are encouraging one another, where we are growing inventive in love more and more all the time, where we have a new name and a new freedom to serve. And so I leave you with this reflection question today. How is God sending you out to be inventive in love? How is God calling us as Knox Church to be inventive in love? Because everyone has a role to play. Every person here. We are all members of this body. What is the Holy Spirit whispering to your heart and your mind today?